I'm Lindsay. And I'm Amanda, and welcome back to Blood and Black Lace, where we discuss what nightmares are truly made of. Tonight, on episode 15, we're heading out to the Midwest, to Villisca, Iowa, to discuss another notorious unsolved murder that has gone unsolved since 1912. We're talking about the one and only Villisca Axe Murders, the bloody, mysterious Velisca Axe murders have stumped authorities for over a century, despite numerous suspects, two trials, and even a confession. On June 10th, 1912, the Moore family was sleeping peacefully in their beds. Joe and Sarah Moore were sleeping upstairs, while their four children were asleep in a room down the hall. In a guest room on the first floor were two girls, the Stillinger sisters, who had come for a sleepover. Shortly after midnight, a stranger entered through the unlocked door, which was not uncommon in those times because this was considered a small, safe, and friendly town. He plucked an oil lamp from a nearby table, rigging it to burn so slow, it supplied light for barely one person. In one hand, the stranger held the lamp, lighting the way through the house. In his other, he held an ax. Ignoring the sleeping girls downstairs, the stranger made his way up the stairs, guided by the lamp and having knowledge of the home's layout. He crept past the room with the children and into Mr. and Mrs. Moore's bedroom. Then he made his way down to the children's room and finally back down the stairs to the downstairs bedroom. Then as quickly and silently as he had arrived, the stranger left taking the keys from the home and locking the door behind him. The next morning, the neighbors became suspicious, noticing that the usually rambunctious home was dead quiet. They alerted Joe's brother, who arrived to take a look. What he saw after letting himself in with his own key was enough to make him sick. Everyone in the house was dead, all eight of them, six children and two adults, bludgeoned beyond recognition. The police determined that the Moore parents had been murdered first and with obvious force. The axe that had been used to kill them had been swung so high above the murderer's head that it gouged the ceiling above the bed. Joe alone had been hit with the axe at least 30 times. The faces of both parents, as well as the children, had been reduced to nothing but a bloody pulp. The state of the bodies wasn't the most concerning part. Once the police had searched the home, after murdering the Moors, the killer had apparently set up some kind of ritual. He had covered the Moors' parents' heads with sheets and the Moors' children's faces with clothing. Then he went through each room in the house, covering all of the mirrors and windows with clothes and towels. At some point, he took a two-pound piece of uncooked bacon from the fridge and placed it in the living room, along with a keychain. The keychain had not belonged to the Moors. A bowl of water was found in the home, spirals of blood swirling through it. Police believed that the murderer had washed his hands in it before leaving. By the time the police, the coroner, a minister, and several doctors had thoroughly perused the crime scene, word of the vicious crime had spread, and the crowd outside the home had grown. 
Officials cautioned the townspeople against going inside. But as soon as the premises was clear, at least a hundred townspeople gave in to their gross fascinations and traipsed through the blood-spattered home. One of the townspeople even took a fragment of Joe's skull as a keepsake. As for the perpetrator of the Velisca Axe murders, the police had shockingly few leads. A few half-hearted efforts to search the town and surrounding countryside were made, though most officials believe that with the roughly five-hour head start that the killer had, he would be long gone. Bloodhounds were brought in, but with no success, as the crime scene had been fully demolished by the townspeople. While no one was ever convicted of the Velisca Axe murders, there seemed to be no shortage of suspects. In the days following the crimes, you could have read about at least four possibilities in any edition of the newspaper. Many of the leads, however, were quickly exhausted, and as time wore on, they began to dwindle. A few suspects were named over time, though none of them panned out. The first was Frank Jones, a prominent Villisca resident and Iowa State Senator, who had been in competition with Joe Moore, or had worked for Jones for seven years in the farm equipment sales business before leaving and starting his own rival business. There was also a rumor that Joe was having an affair with Jones' daughter-in-law, though the reports were unfounded. The townspeople insisted, however, that the Morse and the Joneses harbored a deep hatred for each other, though no one admits it was bad enough to spark murder. The second suspect seemed far more likely and even confessed to the murders, though he later recanted, claiming police brutality. Reverend George Kelly, a traveling preacher, in 1917, Kelly was arrested and charged with the murder of one of the victims of the Velisca Axe murders. Kelly was invited to attend the Children's Day exercises at the Presbyterian Church on June 9, 1912. His presence in Velisca on the night of the murders and his subsequent departure in the early morning hours of June 10th made him a prime suspect in the case. Kelly's supposed confession made a mockery of law enforcement practices at the time and was withdrawn before his first trial began. Kelly's first trial resulted in a hung jury and he was finally acquitted by the second. According to information, Kelly moved to Kansas City, Connecticut, and finally to New York City. The remaining years of his life and his final resting place remains a mystery. In 1914, a private investigator named James Wilkerson was hired to help close the case. Two years later, Wilkerson accused 26-year-old William Mansfield of committing the crimes. According to Wilkerson's theory, Mansfield was hired by Frank F. Jones. This made Mansfield a third suspect. Wilkerson was arrested for the Villisca slains in 1916 but the grand jury failed to return an indictment in the case. For years, police looked into every possible scenario that could have accumulated in the Villisca Axe murders. Was it a single attack or part of a larger string of murders? Or was it more likely to be a local perpetrator or a traveling killer simply passing through town and taking an opportunity? Soon, reports of similar enough crimes happening throughout the country began to pop up. 
Though the crimes were not quite as gruesome, there were two common threads. The use of an axe as the murder weapon and the presence of an oil lamp set to burn extremely low at the scene. Despite the commonalities, however, no actual connections could be made. The case eventually ran cold and the house was boarded up. No sale was ever attempted and no changes were made to the original layout. Now, the house sits at the end of a quiet street as it always has. While life goes on around it, undeterred by the horrors that were once committed within. Then, in 2017, the book called The Man from the Train, The Solving of a Century-Old Serial Killer Mystery, authors Bill James and Rachel McCarthy James introduced a fourth suspect. They called the man on the train. This suspect had traveled cross-country using the railroad between 1898 and 1912, slaughtering at least 14 families from Massachusetts to Oregon. This includes the Velisca Axe murders. They believe that the man on the train was a farmhand named Paul Mueller. According to the book, Paul Mueller looked for isolated homes on the edge of town near a railroad with no dogs and a readily available axe. They alleged that all the murders committed by Paul Mueller had similarities that included late night attacks, locking or blocking doors on the way out to delay discovery, and covering the bodies of the victims. Since 1912, paranormal encounters have been reported, including banging sounds, moving objects, and children's voices. In November 2014, a visitor to the world-renowned Villisca Axe Murder House was rushed to a nearby hospital after being found with a self-inflicted stab wound to his chest. According to reports, the visitor arrived with a group of friends for a recreational paranormal investigation. According to Montgomery County Sheriff Joe Sampson, he was alone in the Northwest bedroom and the rest of the party was outside and he called for help on their mobile two-way radios. His companions found him stabbed in the chest from an apparently self-inflicted wound. They called 911 and the man was brought to a nearby hospital before being helicoptered to Crichton University Medical Center in Omaha. According to a Montgomery County Police report, the incident happened around 12.45 a.m., which is said to be the approximate time that the 1912 murders of Joe and Sarah Moore, along with their four children and the two visiting girls, took place. Paranormal encounters continue to fascinate Americans. In fact, some tourists will pay to visit and tour the property. Some will even pay to stay the night in a real-life haunted house. But beware, it's not always fun and games. Okay, so Amanda, when I was uh, researching this episode, I learned that the axe blade actually struck Joe in the back of the head. 
So that kind of tells me that he was like sleeping face down, like on his stomach. And that's really weird that you mentioned that he got hit 30 times because didn't you mention in the last episode, uh, Lizzie struck her stepmother 30 times and her dad oh, 31. In, so that in the, 30. In the nursery rhyme, it actually said Lizzie Borden took an ax and gave her mother 40 wax. Oh. And she saw what she had done. She gave her father 41. I, I think Lizzie actually only hit her mom 17 times. Um, Joe was actually hit twice as many times. Apparently, nobody in the family woke up except for the oldest Stillinger's uh, sister. She actually woke up before she was killed. That's what I was asked, my, asking myself was how is it there was no noise made? I understand, yeah, it was dark, but there wasn't anybody screaming. That Something's up with that. That's weird. And for it to continue to happen to not just one family, but multiple families, something's up. Somebody's hiding something. Somebody knows something. Something's weird. Uh, yeah, it, it's just the whole, the whole story itself is very odd. But I, I just found it very interesting that the oldest Stillinger's uh, sister was the, the only one who woke up before she was killed and she was the last one to be killed the fact that she didn't scream or maybe she didn't have time to scream who knows that didn't alert you know neighbors or anybody else like that but it was also dead of night and most people back then went to bed pretty early so and they probably lived in the backwoods so their nearest neighbor was probably a half a mile mile away in some of those places exactly also, apparently, the axe man went back upstairs after he killed everybody. He went back up the stairs to hit them again. Um, and that is when he actually reduced their heads to a bloody pulp. It wasn't the first time he did it. The first time he did it, he just made sure they died. He went back up the stairs and went around to everybody and hit them several times again. I don't really know why he was so gruesome about the way he he died. I know usually when you watch things like the ID channel and stuff like that, and they talk about uh, serial killers, you know, going over the top with their killings, there's usually something deep down inside that they actually had a hatred for that person. Usually the hatred for that person is for usually somebody that they know it's very rare that it's a stranger that will kill you in that fashion to go over the top like that. It has to be somebody, you know, it has to be somebody that has like a massive crudge against you. But that's what I was saying. What 14 families and who knows how many else that's crazy. What is going on that you hate that many people? I can see maybe being a criminal and the people of the jury committed said you were guilty and you had to serve time or whatever. Now you're pissed. So you're got to kill the entire jury's family. I get that part maybe, but it's just, it's weird. Uh, Yeah. I have to agree. I I don't know if I necessarily agree with uh, the book's take on what happens. Uh, Yeah. There's a lot of coincidences between, you know, the ax being used and an oil lamp, you know, set to burn low 
but I mean, you know, oil lamps were very common back then. Um, axes were obviously very common back then. Well, I was going to say a copycat. Yeah. I mean, it could easily be that. I just don't, I, I have a hard time believing from all of the ID channel stuff that I've watched in my entire life. And I'm like an ID channel addict that a stranger could be that gruesome to somebody that, you know, doesn't know the family and children. Exactly. And it, I, I don't know. I still believe it's somebody that knew the family that had so much hatred for whether it was Joe or Sarah or whoever, they had hatred for that particular family. And that hatred went into the killings. I also found out that a local woman named Faye Van Gilder on the early morning hours of June 8th, so two days prior to the murder, was accosted by a strange man looking for the Moore home. So she was actually stopped and and asked where the Moore home was. So this was premeditated. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. That, that tells me, you know, hands down. Also, another thing is that Mrs. Moore stated on June 9th, the day before the murders, to someone that she had seen the same man that Faye had seen on their property, but didn't think anything of it. You know, that, that tells me that if she had looked more into it, it may not have gone to the, to the point that it did. Yeah, it sounds like he was stalking her or whoever he was stalking. He was watching when they were going to go to sleep, how many people were in there. I mean, people are sick. People are crazy. They will spend months and years watching someone, whether they're infatuated with them or they hate them, whatever. People are crazy, weird. Yeah. And I, I think I think after everything that has happened in this house, I think the weirdest story about this whole thing is the paranormal investigator stabbing himself. Yeah, that kind of came across my mind. Why would he do that unless there was like some entity talking to him or he got possessed or whatever the case may be? I think if you came into that house, you weren't right. I think whatever was going on, there's something deeper for sure. If I go to Iowa, I want to visit this house. Like this is on my bucket list to visit. Actually, it's funny that you mentioned this. The reason I chose this story after we did Lizzie Borden is because I was reading a blog and the title of the blog was Falls River, Lizzie Borden and Velisca Axe Murder Cases Are Connected. Oh, wow. Really? Yes. Uh, so. But didn't she move around after she so, didn't move outside of uh, Massachusetts. She stayed in Fall River. She just moved to a different house. Huh. So it, it's just, you know, it was just a different, it, it was a very, I don't want to say strange. It was, it was a good point of view. People would have to go and read it. It, it was a very good, well-written um, article. You think um, it was coincidental? Yeah, it says that the at the first glance, the only connection between these two crimes seems to be the choice the killer made at the hardware store or the murder scenes. Well, my question is, why is he putting sheets on the people? Why is he putting, you know, clothes and things on the mirrors, the curtain, you know, the things that would be portals? 
mirrors, windows, those are portals. Why would he be covering those up? Um, and then why is he covering the people up? Is he ashamed of what he's done? Is I have a lot of questions about, about that. He takes a lot of time after he kills his victims. He takes some time. He washed yeah. his hands in a bowl of water, left his DNA behind. That's... Mm. Actually, covering the mirrors is an old superstition. It is a lot. A lot of different religions actually will cover mirrors during a a house in a house of mourning, and that all types. It's written that all types of evil spirits and demons come to visit a family in mourning. When a soul leaves this world, it leaves a void, an emptiness that is prone to be filled by dark forces. This is because wherever there is a vacuum, negativity can creep in. So the house of mourning, the place where the loss is felt the most, is a magnet for evil spirits. So, you know, these demons cannot be seen by the naked eye, but when looking in a mirror, you may catch a glimpse of their reflection in the background. So we cover the mirrors in a house of mourning because we don't want to be alarmed by seeing these demonic visitors. That's one of the theories. That, so That makes... That makes a lot of sense. It, it really does. You're most vulnerable, I think, after you've lost a family member, a friend. Um, you're not thinking straight, and you're very vulnerable. And I can see where an evil spirit or a mischievous spirit would want to, you know, they sometimes even want to inhabit you, you know, take over your body, whatever. So yeah, I can see that for the morning, but why for a murder scene that just, I'm trying to think like a serial killer with an ax would think after I bashed your head in, why would I want to cover your face and then bash you even more? Well, the cover in the face. So that is actually a, um, something that they talk about in a lot of um, shows on the ID channel. The reason why some serial killers cover their victims' faces is for regret for what they've done. They, they feel sadness. They feel regret. They, they see what they've done, and they feel sorry for it, so they cover their face so they don't feel like their victim is looking back at them judging them or anything like that so that would be the reason for you know covering the faces and everything but i think the mirror you know it could have just been a ritual kind of thing the guy you know the person that that did the murders i don't want to say male or female because we really don't know but the person doing the the murders might have just been a very religious person so hence the covering of the mirrors he didn't want he didn't want to look into the mirror and perhaps see the ghost of you know, Sarah Moore looking back at him, judging him, or he didn't want to look at himself in the mirror because he had regret. He felt sorry for what he did. There's a lot of different reasons. Uh, mirrors are notorious for being, you know, like you said, you know, uh, portals to another world and, and stuff like that, which is, you know, why when they, you know, talk about Candyman and you look in the mirror, you know, when you're in a dark bathroom or anywhere that's dark and you have a mirror and you say his name what is it three times or it's bloody mary also they come out you know it's just it's religion or it's you know superstition you, or exactly and you can't look at yourself because of what you've done you know you you feel you feel this regret for you know killing these people 
so you know it could have been a, it could be a lot of different reasons why the mirrors were covered when abraham lincoln's body lay in state in the east room of the white house apparently there's there's windows at either end of the room and they were draped in black and the frames and the mirrors between the windows as well as over marble uh the marble um mantles were draped with the same material it, it was just it was very common back then for you know that kind of i mean people back then were very superstitious extremely superstitious i mean that's really all they had was superstition and their religion so i i can kind of see you know why the the mirrors were covered but my question i guess would be and i haven't read the book i have not read the book about the Velisca axe murders or the man on the train but my question is, is that of the other 14 families, were their faces covered? Were the mirrors covered? You know, did they have bacon, uncooked bacon left randomly? I mean, that, that to me is like the weirdest part of this whole thing is the uncooked bacon and this random keychain. Yeah. And did he leave a keychain for at each of the crime scenes? Was that would tie the crime scenes together more right uh, why are why is there not a suspect a true true suspect yet why is all of this on maybe 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 well they said there was the bowl with the blood swirled around it why could we not get a dna i guess back then they didn't have dna samples i don't mm -hmm. know no they really didn't back then unfortunately and and from what i understand from the research Velisca was a very small community back in those days, I believe it's still pretty small. You have a lot of things going against you. You have a small town. It's back bef way before DNA, CSI and all that. And mm -hmm. you know how you had like the crime scene analyst. I mean, come on, they, they allowed people to traipse through the crime scene. I mean, somebody took a piece of Joe's skull as a keepsake. I mean, who does that? So my thought is the fact that it, this investigation was doomed from the beginning. I mean, it really was. You you look at a lot of like deaths that happened back in those days, like the Lizzie Borden uh, murders. I mean, she was acquitted. They never found the actual quote unquote murder, whether you believe it was Lizzie Borden or not. Now, now you got the Velisca Axe murders. Like perpetrators got away with a lot of shit back then because there was no, you know, DNA. There was no actual like it was law enforcement but it was a joke i mean compared to what we have today obviously because we've got better technology they're not secure in the crime scene there's i mean this was the first murder that probably ever happened in Velisca, so they didn't know how to handle it they had no idea what they were doing they were up to their you know they were way past their eyeballs well and, and, and what the fucks <laughs> yeah and also you know the the people that lived in that area they knew that area like the back of their hand they knew where to hide. They knew how to get to main roads, how to stay off, you know, the grid, how to live off the land. Uh, I mean, they had it made, man, to commit a crime and to be able to get away with it. Yeah, I, I, I can totally see that. Now, I don't know if the Velisca Axe Murder House is near a railroad. That I'm a little like, uh, on because... I know they said that in, in the book, you know, this person would go from town to town as long as it was near a railroad. Right. 
and they had no dog. Obviously, the Moors didn't have a dog. I do know that apparently the pet stores that they, or whatever you want to call them from back then, they actually sold out of dogs the day after like this happened. Like, <laughs> it was crazy. I'm looking at a map, and I don't see a railroad close to the Velisca Axe murder house. See, and they say these murders are tying together. I mean, there's little bits and pieces they're each correlated with, but it doesn't sound like you have an axe murderer and it's the same person. It sounds like there's more than one thing going on here, whether it's paranormal or not. But it sounds like you have several... I'm definitely, at this point, I think that, I, I mean, anybody who's, you know, when they talk about ghosts, happen for many reasons. And one of the reasons is, you know, unfinished business, you know, being taken out of, you know, your life being taken away from you way too soon. And obviously this happened to Joe and Sarah Moore and, and the kids. So... Hands down, I believe that, you know, there's some kind of tomfoolery, paranormal stuff going on in that house, whether it's, you know, as haunted as some places are, that is kind of like questionable. I I do believe it, it to me, it's very hard to believe that this house is not haunted after what happened in, in it and after what happened to to the paranormal investigator who stabbed himself like this house has to be haunted well yeah i definitely see um yeah i'd be pretty pissed off if somebody fucking murdered me in my sleep that is my hobby i love to sleep and i'd be pissed off if he murdered me in my sleep and i have to keep repeating the same fucking shit over and over because i don't realize i'm dead you know, that I would be angry and I would want answers. I would want revenge. I would want to, I would be one of those asshole ghosts that wants revenge. It would piss me off. So I can see that, you know, noises and doors opening and closing and all of those things. Yeah, they're upset. They want their justice, and they were asleep, so they didn't even get to probably it was dark, they didn't get to see who their killer even was exactly. And it's weird the suspects in this case you know, you have the state senator, and then you have what I read was that this they didn't believe the state senator actually killed them, they believed that he hired somebody named William Blackie Mansfield, which we talked about Mansfield in the episode. Uh, Mansfield was actually a coke addict, and he was an apparent serial killer also. However, this is where the story gets even weirder. There was another person who blamed a reverend, George Kelly, a British-born traveling preacher who many said was insane, and a guy named Henry Lee Moore, who was no relation to Joe and Sarah. And Henry Lee Moore was a convicted serial killer who reportedly killed 22 people in the Midwest. Henry Moore was convicted of killing his mother and his maternal grandmother with an axe just months after the Velisca slains. 
you know, we, we talked about Kelly and, and how he confessed to the murders, but he said he only confessed because of police brutality. It's just, it, there's just so many suspects. And it's just one of those stories where all the suspects, I mean, are, are good suspects. It's not like, you know, where the hell did you pick this person up at? Or, you know, why is this person a suspect? No, these are really good suspects. And it, it's just, I don't know, it just the whole thing just, I've always been fascinated by this story. Always. Well, I'll tell you, it, it definitely has me baffled. If you're going to not be a serial killer, but you want to kill, you would switch it up a little bit. I can see that. But there's too many other variables. Uh, like you said, with the Reverend, it just, it, it's got me so bad because it just does not make any sense why he was even there. In the middle of the night, he obviously was watching them. He knew their routine. He knew he knew the layout of the home. Yeah, in, it had to be somebody who knew, like, who had, knew the family. Yeah, had been in the yeah. house, who knew who was there, who knew, you know, maybe even got surprised that there were two other girls there. Um, I don't know, but I can just picture myself downstairs trying to sleep and there's all this commotion and I'm the last one to wake up and the last one to die that yeah that's uh, that's horrible yeah it, it it really is um so I'm, I'm sitting here reading as we're talking apparently in 1930 uh newlyweds Bonnie and Homer Rittner rented the house for a short time they rented the house until Bonnie told her new husband she saw the image of a man with an axe standing at the end of their bed. Hmm. Another couple who purchased the home reported seeing a door open and close by itself. Later, neighbors reported hearing a, a noise around 3 a.m. and looked outside to see the couple running down the street in their night clothes. I mean, you can't tell me this place isn't haunted. I mean, for something that that, that gruesome that happened, that horrific happened, those spirits cannot rest, and it's it's very unfortunate. Yeah, very much so. Hopefully one day, you know, with forensics the way it is now, I know they have a lot of cases that they're trying to deal with now, but if someone could just go back and just take a look at this and try to do some forensics to just get these families, you know, the, the justice. years later? Yeah, and peace. I, I honestly don't think it's going to happen. Like, like Brian, like Brian's big mouth just said a hundred years later, I think whatever evidence there was got destroyed when the townspeople traipsed through the crime scene. I mean, that, that in it, uh, in of itself is just. Yeah. Completely and utterly disrespectful. <laughs> wow. Amanda, this podcast went super long, but it was such an interesting story. I say, you know what? Fuck it. Let's just end it here. Peace out. As always, friends, we're wishing you unpleasant dreams. I'm Lindsay. And I'm Amanda. And we will catch you next time when we discuss the Vulture Gold Mine in Wickenburg, Arizona on Blood and Black Lace. <laughs>